Um, but two things as we get started. Um, this is the, the James study. Um, but I would like to thank the session of this church for the opportunity to teach uh, and to seek to improve and test my uh, giftings. Um, and second, uh, the book that we are considering is, is the Bible book is James. But we're going through, uh, and we're going through this book and the thoughts uh, and the exhortations of Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, many of you will probably know Sinclair Ferguson and probably benefited from his teaching and been edified by his reflections on the Christian life. Uh, and thus, anything good from this lesson uh, probably came from Ferguson, and if there's anything terrible, well, you can extrapolate that probably came from the intern. Uh, but really, two things I just want to point out to us from, from these six verses, and you can go ahead and turn to James 4. Uh, we'll be considering the first six verses. And there are really two things we just want to look at, uh, two things that uh, I will try to draw out for us, uh, and they can be summarized by the words of John Newton, the uh, hymn writer and the well-known, well-loved uh, hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, and as he was aging and his memory was failing, uh, he's quoted to have said, there are two things that I remember clearly, that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And so as we enter now into our section, um, let me pray for us before we read, uh, but I encourage you just to remember James 1, 5, that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Uh, James is a hard book, and uh, we could do with wisdom, so let's ask the God who is willing to give it to us. So please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. Um, but Father, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are your ways above our ways. And so we do ask you to give us wisdom. Help us to understand um, these, these six verses and what they mean for us. Uh, we pray that we would know who you are from them and what you require of us. Uh, and Father, I pray that you would help my words to, to say nothing but what you would have me to say. And Father, we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, James 4, 1 through 6. Uh, please listen now as I read the very words of God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose, the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This ends the reading of God's Word. Well, these six verses can feel like a bit of a slap in the face. Um, but let's remember the context of, of where we are in the book of James and who it is he's writing to. Uh, remember that in verse 1 uh, of chapter 1, James describes himself as a bondservant of God who is, uh, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is writing to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, and he gives them greetings. Uh, James is writing to a people who are in exile, uh, away from their homeland. They are people suffering trials of various kinds, and these are the 12 tribes who are suffering under the Romans uh, in real time and space. 
And he's writing these harsh words to these sufferers, and we might be a little bit surprised. In our minds, we might be thinking, well, this is the early church, right? They are the ones who are closer to Jesus and to disciples. Some of them have probably heard Jesus preach, or maybe even seen a miracle, a healing, and they are now scattered to the four winds. And let's, let's not miss the harshness of these words. He just called them adulterers, these people who are suffering. I'd be like telling your kids who are, who are asking, why do I keep fighting my siblings? Well, look, son, it's because you are a broken, selfish, greedy person. The real problem is you. Uh, however, Jesus, uh, excuse me, James's harsh words to these people need to make us stop and consider. Maybe there's a reason for his harshness. Uh, he certainly is direct. Perhaps there's a deeper and maybe even pastoral point. And so let's re-examine the situation. Uh, in the early church picture, we get a portrait of people who are struggling with quarrels in the church. They're struggling with their passions, being at war within them. They're struggling to come to God in prayer. And they struggle to be faithful to God because they are tempted by the world. We might say, hmm, what does the church uh, today struggle with? Quarrels, fighting with passions, slowness to come to prayer, and temptation with the world. So before we take offense to this passage, let us consider a thought from Dr. Ferguson. Uh, and this thought is something that will carry us through the rest of the lesson. Um, James here is acting like a doctor, a physician of the soul, and he is practicing on the whole church. It's important to remember that James said he was a servant of God, uh, not a servant of the church, the, because the churches who received this letter uh, might also have taken exception to this berating. Uh, sometimes we think that the pastor can work for the church uh, because uh, we pay, pay his salary, we uh, hire and fire him, so to speak. But James models to us a, a higher employment. He's saying he is in the employment of God. He is a servant of God, and therefore he can only say what God would have him say. And in this way, James is living out his Christian calling by obeying um, Excuse me, John 12, uh, 29. For I have not spoken, this is Jesus speaking, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but what the Father uh, has sent me, I speak. And what he has commanded me to say, I say. Thus, James in our section, as in the section before, is working through his analysis, his prognosis, and his diagnosis by probing into the depths of our hearts and finding the real problem and then ripping it out. So look again at verse 1 uh, with me. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And we can deduce from this question that perhaps James is, was informed that these churches are struggling with fighting and bickering among themselves. And so here's the analogy. Y'all know who Sherlock Holmes is, uh, probably, and know that he is the creation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and that he uh, was probably remembered most for his great adventures, that he would go to solve a crime, come to the bottom of a case that would keep the police going in circles for months on end. But the way Conan Doyle wrote most of his short stories was that people would come to 221B Baker Street and Mr. Holmes would solve the case right there. They would come with their information and he would not even need to leave his flat to solve his elementary problems. Well, the solution uh, is, a, or excuse me, the same problem could be said of uh, our doctor today. Uh, James does not even need to be there to solve the problem. Uh, the real problem is not that they have fighting and quarreling in the church, um, even though this does bring shame to the name of Christ. Um, the real problem is something quite deeper. You see, bitterness and, and jealousy 
uh, which we heard about last week from Mr. Ellis's lesson, uh, we could have, because these things do exist in the church, we could have perhaps seen that there would have been bickering and fighting in the church. Uh, it's not, it doesn't take a rocket science to predict that when you put a bunch of selfish people uh, all in the same room, fighting and quarreling is inevitable. Um, but this is not the real problem. It's kind of like a cough is a symptom of a cold. And you might treat a cough, you might treat the symptom. Um, if you treat the illness, the symptoms will go away. And so the deeper issue has to be dealt with before we can get to that. And so through the next few verses, we're going to be probing a bit deeper to find out the real problem. And thus the diagnosis is that our passions, again, this is in verse 1, the diagnosis is that our passions, perhaps even our pleasures, are at war within us. The quarreling and fighting, again, is just a symptom. The real problem is hedonism. Now, hedonism is from the Greek for pleasures. And what we are concerned with is earthly-mindedness. It's having a first concern, not with spiritual things, but with how we can please ourselves. And this is antithetical to how the body is supposed to function. Um, the answer to the question is, is it not that your passions are at war within you? And so the churches say, we have a problem. And James says, yeah, but you really don't know how bad the problem is. These churches are like a husband who gets injured in the yard on the back of his leg and goes to the wife and says, can you put a Band-Aid on my back? And she says, it's not just your back, it's, your, it's not just your legs, it's your back and your head as well. Um, there's a, but wait, there's more, and it's not the more that we want to hear. So James the, James the doctor pulls the microscope a little bit closer and increases his magnifi- magnification a few times. And verse 2, um, we have another diagnosis. You desire, but do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarter, so to speak. We just went from bad thoughts and bad inclinations uh, to statutory offenses. But remember the vicious cycle of sin that James pointed out to us in chapter 1, verse 15. And this, and that says, then went to this uh, decline. Remember Cain and Abel and the pattern of sin there. Cain desired the favor of his brother Abel. He desired his sacrifice. He des- desires were at war within him. Um, from the diagnosis of God himself, sin was crouching at his door and seeking to devour him. And sin, when it gave birth, produced murder, and the murder of a brother at that. And we all know that what Cain did was wrong, and he's a terrible person. Uh, but perhaps we have not committed murder. Um, and maybe we might add a bit of extra applicability to this, though, from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court for murder. And everyone who says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So if we are not uh, guilty under this uh, pronouncement, then uh, perhaps we need to re-examine ourselves. Um, But our desires are condemning us, and our desires do lead us to uh, hate. But verse 3 keeps, keeps going down the rabbit hole, uh, keeps going down uh, to get at the, the seed of, what, of the problem. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The reason we do not have, uh, and so that we covet and commit wor- murder, is we do not ask. And this is a really poignant point from Ferguson, that our murder, murderous desires and covetousness, covetousness is a direct result of our prayerlessness. Think about the promise in Romans 8.32. 
which says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? You see, all of it, all, everything, all is ours in Christ. Our problem is we don't ask. Remember the hymn, uh, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. And then another hymn, See how thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth. And then to continue on in verse 3, when we do ask, we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions. There is a sadistic, uh, demonic neatness to this loop, if you will. It's all going back to me, that we started with a problem with our pleasures and we ended with a problem with our pleasures. Uh, we make a mockery of religion by coveting when we have the greatest gift uh, ever given to all of mankind. And the semblance of religion that we do engage in, uh, we abuse for, to, excuse me, to ask um, for selfish gain. And this sounds remarkably familiar. It sounds like Israel in the book of Judges. It sounds like a spiral, a vicious loop of turning away from the Lord again and again and Him pursuing us and turning away. Uh, truly, we are those prone to wander. And the diagnosis is really, really bad. <laughs> we go to the doctor and he basically, basically tells us, you're the problem. The problem is you. Stop it. <laughs> and, the church, and the same here is true with the church for James. The, James uh, the church goes to James with a problem. Uh, the problem is fighting. James flips the tables and says the symptoms. These problems are really just the symptoms, and the real problem uh, is not covetousness or murder or prayerlessness or unbelief. Um, the diagnosis is that you are an adulterous people. Yikes. James is talking to the church, not the world, but the church. Uh, and it is at this moment <laughs> in preparing this Sunday school lesson that my intern self was shivering in my boots because, like, wow, I'm supposed to teach this lesson to the adult Sunday school? Well, um, yeah, he is saying that uh, you you people are really no better than Israel. Uh, Israel, who was always, it seemed, going after other gods and other lovers. And James comes out and says that, yeah, the churches are really the same. And why? Well, why this harsh rendering of the sentence? Well, because the church, churches have been seeking friendship with the world. We might say, wait a minute, I thought these people were being persecuted. The world hates them, right? The world mocks them and makes fun of their religion. And even in a few short years, we'll make it illegal for them to actually meet together and be Christians. But this is the nature of sin. It's never done anything for the church. It's never done anything for us. Uh, it has always treated us with uh, manipulation rather than fulfillment. Its desire is for us, to devour us, not to satisfy us. And yet the church is still tempted. The church in the early church that James is dealing with and our church today. Uh, we are tempted to satisfy our pleasures with entertainment or alcohol or sexuality or hobbies or interest, and none of these uh, satisfy, and yet we are still tempted. Um, but this is, how, this is the nature of how we trade the truth of God for the lie. The truth about God is that He is our shield and our defender. He is our bread of life, our fountain of living water, and He is the arranger of the stars and all the beauty of the earth comes from His hand. And this is what we trade for sin. And how important uh, he is, and more importantly, he is the King of King, kings and the Lord of lords. And to him is due all worship. And these are the things that we trade. And remember the first words that he ever spoke to man in Genesis 1, 27. 
He creates God. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. And the very next verse, the first thing God says to man is, verse 28, he blessed them. He blesses man. The orientation of God to man is blessing. Um, and this blessing is the truth that we exchange about God for the lie. We think our pleasures will bless us. We think our material wealth will bless us. We think our social status will bless us. And we think friendship with the world will get us ahead. And thus we worship the creature rather than the creator. So this is how James is able to render such a harsh diagnosis that we are branded with the fiery letter, the scarlet A, if you will, because we are acting like enemies with God. And this is really bad for the churches. Um, James is just destroying their spiritual merit by saying, well, at least we're not Israel in the time of the judges. Uh, and at a time like this, we might despair um, because we are acting like Adam and Eve. We are acting like um, our first parents in Genesis 3. And remember the verbs in Genesis 3. Remember that Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. She desired it because it was desirable to make one wise, and she took and ate. And in the same way, this is what we see in the churches. They see things they want, money with the rich, social status, which they covet, winning an argument or judging uh, that they might, uh, they might put themselves ahead. They desire these things. They desire these forbidden fruits, which God has told them, and history has proven uh, these things do not fulfill. The, right, the anger of God does not produce the righteousness of man, but they still go after unbridled tongues, which do not profit the body of Christ. And so they choose to act upon these sinful desires, and they take for themselves and give to their families who are with them. And they try to satisfy their pleasures with what is condemned. They choose, in short, not God. Uh, not the God who blessed them and gave them everything in the garden, uh, quite literally everything in the world. Uh, and another connection we might make between this church and our, and our section and Genesis 3 is James in our section points out that there was bittering, bitterness and fighting and quarreling, so much so that uh, we need a diagnosis of adultery. And James says, yes, we have seen these cases before. We have seen it many times. And remember that after Adam and Eve have sinned against each other, they cover themselves and they hide and they are estranged. And then what do they do? They start blame shifting. They start fighting amongst themselves and quarreling. And we know from the Genesis story that the only reason there's blame shifting and fighting is because they've sinned. Uh, it's a symptom, their blame shifting and their arguing is a symptom of a deeper issue. Well, the same is true of our church uh, in the book of James. They fight because there's a deeper issue. And the issue is that they have chosen not God. And so it's natural that the only, the only solution, the only um, diagnosis of the problem is that they are an adulterous people. Uh, now, it's no wonder that God should be jealous over Adam and Eve, uh, the pinnacle of his creation. Uh, and God describes himself throughout the Bible as a husband who pursues his bride, and his purpose is for her. And he gives her gifts, such as in the garden, and yet his people still spurn him. He describes himself as a, um, as a husband, a jealous husband. And in the New Testament, um, the stakes are up a bit, and we are given the Spirit, and the Spirit who is himself sent by Christ to be the great helper. And how does he help us? Uh, by applying the work of Christ to us, uh, to our souls, by convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it is this Spirit that we are grieving by our fighting. It is this Spirit that we are grieving by our coveting, covetousness, by our murder, um, 
And so James summarizes the whole Bible in verse 5 by saying uh, he yearns jealously over the Spirit who he has made to dwell in us uh, in verse 5. God is saying that the churches uh, through, he's saying to the churches through his servant James that you are mine, you belong to me. Uh, this sin is, is, uh, is not for you. And this is the heart of our God. This is the heart that burns every time his people leave for lesser pleasures. Uh, and it is, uh, is, as a little aside, it's been rather a crazy week for me and my family. It's been very busy. Um, and as I got here this morning and reviewing my notes uh, over these, these six verses, I realized that I, had, I didn't really comment on verse 5 at all. Uh, and I hope you, hope you can see this as an example of how easy it is for us to forget the Lord. Uh, God reveals His heart to us. Uh, he opens Himself up to us as a love, the lover of our souls, and uh, I, your supposed Sunday school teacher this morning, for, almost forgot to say anything about it. Uh, and to put this in a relationship context, God has just been vulnerable to us. He has revealed His inner heart to us through scriptures and through history. Uh, why is God slow to anger? Because He loves us. Why is God known for showing steadfast kindness even to His enemies? Because He loves us. And it is against this God that we sin and turn away. We have sinned, and now God is jealous, and He is jealous over the Spirit that dwells in us. But, and this is a word that we really love, especially in the New Testament, uh, but we, uh, we see verse 6, and we turn a corner uh, to now be drawn by irresistible grace, but He gives more grace. We could just end the lesson there. Uh, but let's unpack this a bit more. This is the gospel in short. We have sinned. Uh, and remember our physician analogy, uh, anal analogy uh, that James is saying, you guys are sick, and not a sick in the John Michael Stovall way, but you guys are sick with adultery. Uh, you need more grace. And praise the Lord that He is a God who does give more grace, freely and without limit. Um, but what does grace do to us? What, what is the effect of it on our souls? Well, grace, grace humbles us. Uh, and let's take a minute to think about this. Uh, does anyone have any uh, reservations or any... Um, uh, look at verse 6. Uh, but he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Does it, does anyone see, does it seem odd to anyone that he would quote a Proverbs right after uh, saying the gospel, that he gives more grace? Um, it seems almost out of place, but let me explain what I mean by that. We've been told that we are sinners in the most egregious way in verses 1 to 3. We have been shown our adultery in startling fashion in verse 4. And now we are told that we need more grace. So our minds, as good Reformed people, go to Romans 5.20, right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. To which we say, yes and amen. But then after that, we get a proverb. Uh, proverb uh, 3.34. Uh, and here's the danger. And let me, let me pull a pastor cliff here and say, danger, Will Robertson. Uh, the danger is in us thinking that our receiving grace is conditional upon this proverb, conditional upon us humbling ourselves. Uh, and it might go this way. Um, God must be allowing me to suffer because I'm not humble enough. Or I need to think right thoughts of other people in order to receive grace. But this is absolutely not what James is saying. Uh, let's keep the right order uh, in our minds in which James writes this letter. There's a purpose behind him giving the diagnosis, the problem, and then the solution. We have sinned, 
God shows more grace. And so now, be humbled. Uh, Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. is not the result of grace. Excuse me, it's, it's, not the con, it's not contingent upon grace, but it's the result of grace. Grace humbles us. Our response is humble, uh, humility to grace. Uh, and so here at Grace, you, at Grace PCA, you hear over and over again that the gospel indicatives come with gospel imperatives. And James is saying this morning uh, the same thing. You who were once far off have been brought near. That is, the truth about God, that God gives grace to adulteresses like us, means that we need to stop being adulteresses, uh, to turn from our sins and to humble ourselves before such monumental grace. So here from this lesson this morning, there are a few things that I want to remind us of. Um, One, that we are great sinners, that we fight um, like our first parents, and we quarrel amongst ourselves, and just like the churches. Uh, In James, we covet uh, because we do not have, and we desire things that we ought not to desire, uh, and so we murder because we do not have, because we do not ask. And this sin is a sin of adultery. But God gives more grace. God gives more grace to people like us. And therefore, the appropriate response is to be humble, to humble ourselves in the face of this abundant grace. And to put it more simply, We are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. Um, Any questions? Comments, statements of brilliance? Well, seeing none, uh, please close with me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, and we do uh, ask that you would change us by it. We pray that you would... Uh, help us to turn from our covetousness. We pray that you would instill in us a heart which is only for you. We pray that you would um, uh, change our hearts to to desire you above all else, that we would not grieve the Spirit who dwells in us, um, but that we would be those who uh, are a sweet-smelling aroma to your name. Uh, and Father, I pray now that you would prepare our hearts for worship. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word, and that we would offer to you acceptable worship in the name of Christ. And it is His name that we come before you this morning. Amen.